0: this government matters podcast is sponsored by hughes network systems it's time to expect more from your network
1: today on government matters criminals are using crypto exchanges to hide illegal activity how a team of lawyers in the justice department is taking them down then electric car batteries airport screening devices and artificial limbs are a few of the technologies developed by federal labs but to have an impact, they have to make it to consumers. And the U.S. recently wrapped up its largest ever military exercise with Israeli forces. We discuss its significance, lessons learned, and the impact it could have on U.S. relations in the region. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gurgis.
1: This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gergis. The DOJ recently arrested a top executive from BitsLotto, a cryptocurrency exchange that allowed criminals to profit from ransomware, drug trafficking, and other illegal activity. Oon Young Choi is the director of the department's National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team. Young, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mimi. So explain what happened in that uh, Bitslato case. What what was the crime? How did you guys respond?
2: Sure. As we allege in our charging instrument there, Bitslato was an illicit cryptocurrency exchange that did not do what it was required to do under U.S. regulations. In fact, it was not licensed to operate, even though it did have U.S. customers in its in its base, and it did not follow the regulations that are required under the Bank Secrecy Act, including f- having things like a robust anti-money laundering program and know your customer policies. Now what does that mean really? It means that anyone on the internet who wanted to launder funds could go to Bit's Lotto and provide literally no identifying information about themselves and transact millions of dollars. As we allege in our complaint. Uh, Bitslotto facilitated billions of dollars worth of transactions, including 700 million with Hydra, a darknet marketplace that we took down last April with our German counterparts. And so in our view, it's a pretty significant enforcement action, both because we worked with our domestic partners at the United States Treasury and using their tools and enforcement mechanisms, as well as with six different international partners led by the French um, to do arrests and enforcement actions and searches across Europe, as well as take down their digital infrastructure that allowed the the cryptocurrency exchange to persist. So tell me a little bit more about
1: this uh, dark web platform called Mm -hmm. Market. they they were involved in this what what role did they actually play with bitslado
2: as we allege uh, hydro was a dark net market uh, marketplace that existed um, that sold all sorts of illicit contraband including narcotics and when we have set forth in our complaint is that at least 700 million dollars <throat> of illicit transactions occurred between Hydra, the marketplace and its users, as well as Bitlato, which means it helped facilitate the transactions that were happening on Hydra. We say darknet marketplace, that just means it's a marketplace that's on the hidden Web, um, where there's technology used to try to hide the true identities of the folks that are using that. So, how significant is this case? In our view, it's quite significant for two different reasons. One is that it was it highlighted the tools that we can use across government um, domestically in order to disrupt ongoing criminal activity. So, in this case, as we mentioned, we arrested the. Um, the operator, the founding operator, and majority shareholder who happened to be in Miami. He is a Russian national who was living in China for quite some time. The entity itself was registered in Hong Kong. Um, As a result of its analysis, Treasury decided to designate it as a primary money laundering concern for Russian illicit finance, given the amount of ties it had with Russian criminal and illicit finance activity. And in addition, we partnered with our international partners because the people who were operating it were really throughout the world. Um, They were in at least three different European countries. Um, We had six, as I mentioned, six different law enforcement partnerships with um, European authorities coordinated through Europol, and we had to take down the servers and the infrastructure that was located in Europe at the time.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of countries involved in this. I mean, how are you coordinating all those different pieces with different countries and they
2: have different? laws they have different I mean structures that's what makes this uh, a notable achievement for us it's the ro- a blueprint in the role that uh, sort of the model that we want to use going forward um, the way that we do that is to just continue to uh, to build strong partnerships we've been working in the cryptocurrency space in the Department of Justice since the advent of cryptocurrency and even before that on international takedowns involving digital assets and so we're at a place where we know who the our partners are who can do this type of work and in instances in which we know that there are countries where we see a rise of illicit activity relating to digital assets. We're making sure that we can build strong partnerships with them and teach them the ways of how to investigate these crimes. So it's not um, so we can be sort of forward-leaning in our approach when we see a digital asset crime touch in a jurisdiction that we have partnerships with we can go to them and say you should take the lead and that's a part, that's a model we use in hydra as well we were investigating hydra we realized that there were significant ties with uh, the German jurisdiction and they're excellent law enforcement partners so they could take the lead on parts of that operation. Similarly in Bitslato, the same with our French partners. They are excellent at this type of work and we knew that we could reach out to them to get the job so,
1: done. So, Eun what is it about digital currency that lends itself to criminal activity?
2: Sure, I mean, I think it's like any other type of technology. It can always be exploited by bad actors. There's some specific factors that are built into the technology that we think help facilitate its use in criminal activity. Among them is that it's created to avoid, it, or it was created to avoid financial intermediaries and allow for cross-border transactions that happen quite quickly without the capacity to reverse those transactions. So that means if you're a victim of a crypto crime, Even if you realize that you've become a victim quite quickly, there's no way to reverse the transaction once you've sent that money. And so we're trying to develop ways in order to combat the sort of international aspect of cryptocurrency to make sure that everyone within the department who works these types of cases has the competency to understand how to follow money through the blockchain and knows all the authorities and the tools that we have both within the DOJ and with our law enforcement partners and also with our federal um, partners like Treasury.
1: Just very briefly, tell me a little bit about the the. Team, the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team and what you're responsible for?
2: Sure, it was set up by the Department of Justice in late 2021. And I was appointed as its first director about a year ago in February of last year. And the purpose of the team was a recognition from the department that we're now seeing digital assets touch upon all of our types of investigations in the criminal sphere, be it drug dealing, be it cybercrime, be it uh, fraud against the American consumer or retail public. So. We need to make sure that we had a group of centralized subject matter experts drawn from cr- across the uh, department who specialize in money laundering, cybercrime, fraud, and a variety of other types of tools who know how to do these cases to try to not only specialize in doing these types of disruptive activities that are about um, these platforms, but also to try to help train our workforce to do this job better. Un Young, thank you so much for joining us. Great, thanks for having me. Coming
1: up, an invention can't do much if it's stuck in a lab. How federally developed tech reaches the marketplace. Stay with us. A national network of over 300 federal laboratories, agencies and research centers is accelerating the transfer of technology to the people who can use it. Paul Zielinski is the executive director of the Federal Laboratory Consortium for Technology Transfer. Paul, welcome to the
3: program. Thank you very much for having me today. Pleasure to be here. So first, tell me about the
1: consortium why was it created? When was it created?
3: Sure. Well, you know, it started way, really way back in 1974, It's just sort of a loose gathering of federal agencies and their laboratories to really sort of sort things out across the government. You know, government's a very complicated place, and so trying to have some level of consistency and some ability to approach the government in a, you know, a consistent manner and sort of a, um, level expectations of what you're getting when you get there. So that grew. In 1986, Congress actually passed a law that said that this consortium will exist. So there's a nice piece of legislation that says you exist. It's from the Federal Technology Transfer Act, actually, from 86. And then it became sort of an uh, independent quasi-governmental agency of sorts. Our members are actually all of the federal laboratories. So we have essentially 11 research agencies with multiple laboratories, as you mentioned, 300 major laboratories with thousands of locations, actually, nationwide. So pretty much there's a laboratory or something nearby most people. And again, our mission, really, as we call it, is promote, educate, and facilitate. So we actually talk about what's the return on investment from research and development. Why is this really worth your tax dollars? How does this get to you? And how does this make a difference actually in people's lives? We educate both the profession, so people who do this within the federal government across all these laboratories, as well as Potential partners, people that from companies uh, that might work with the laboratories to actually develop new products, and then as well as trying to actually try to facilitate these deals, if you will, like trying to bring people together. We like to call it a contact sport you know, you got to meet people in this organization, and that's how you actually make individual deals that actually build up to really something special. But talk about
1: that process, Paul, of, of the technology transfer. I mean, there's some really interesting basic research and, and things going on in these labs. And then, you know, how do these companies know about it? How do they get that technology? Do they have to license it?
3: Sure, that's actually one of the most interesting parts of working with all these different technologies. Love to work with the different technologies. So it's interesting with all these laboratories, you know, they have fences around it. We actually welcome people in. So there's a lot of opportunities working with these federal laboratories. When you think about research and development, you know, the government doesn't make things. You don't buy things from the government. You buy it from companies. So the basic concept of technology transfer is to work with companies as you're doing the research and development in order to transfer it, to put it out into the marketplace. So thinking ahead, what are the products and services that are going to be available to the American public? So we can work collaboratively. So it's not just the government researchers. We can bring in companies and work with them so they can develop develop the products. We can patent and license things out so we have ideas. You know, you want to define what is it, and then you want to have sort of that deed, if you will. It's intellectual property, and so you can transfer that and give it to someone to build their product and really raise some capital. You know, when you think about investment in research and development, the government's about a third of the US research and development investment is, you know, for the billions of dollars that it is, but about two-thirds of the R&D capital really comes from private industry. And so this is a really important collaboration between the government laboratories and private industry as well.
1: And there's also the ability for companies to use the facilities at federal labs. I mean, so, yeah. so they can just kind of come in and say, look, I, I need to test some things or I need to um, how does that
3: work? Absolutely. And that's actually one of these huge advantages. You know, these are facilities that were built, obviously, within different agencies for a purpose. They all have a purpose and a mission statement. So that's what they're working at. But we have some tremendous facilities and capabilities at these laboratories at all, all sorts of different fields of study. You know, if you think about it, we've got anywhere from defense, NIH and all the health environmental work, uh, agriculture, space travel with NASA, all of these different areas. And we have experts, but we also have a lot of really unique and interesting facilities, test beds that are available for people to work with, uh, different ways to collaborate. We even have things that are called user facilities that are actually specifically set up so that companies can come in and use the facilities actually for their business development and actually to make products in some cases. So
1: give me some examples of some of those technologies that have been successfully transferred and are making a difference in people's lives.
3: Sure, and we actually have a really neat thing in our website called Lab Tech in Your Life. And the whole point of this is that these things aren't something that you've never heard of, but they're actually products that you actually use every day. So things like memory foam mattresses are a good example. You know, this comes from launching space vehicles, from putting humans in space from NASA. Uh, we've got and one of the things we talked about from a long time ago, but is something as simple as Siri, which is actually an information overload piece that was developed out of DARPA. Uh, we've got lots of other interesting things. You know, I like to talk about some of the ones that actually come from where you don't expect them. We had a uh coding that went on heart stents. Now heart stents, you would obviously think that this is something that comes from a place like NIH, but it really didn't. In this case, it came from a fossil energy lab. It was a drill bit. It was actually a non-corrosive coating. Now, this thing sold billions of dollars worldwide. It's in a lot of people as a heart stent. But, you know, there's different parts of this and they all build ups. You know, when you think about technology, there's lots of different components for different things and so all of these things you know it's a matter of pulling them together and a lot of times they are improvements over existing products as well
1: Paul I don't want to run out of time before you tell me about the annual awards that you hold
3: sure thank you very much for asking about that so the FLC the Federal Lab Consortium we promote excellence in what we call technology transfer so we're trying to have some great examples of how labs are making a difference in people's lives. So uh, we do an annual award ceremony, which is really recognizing and trying to promote this idea to our laboratories. And we recognize in a lot of different categories. So in our excellence in tech transfer, we're looking at some of these unique things. So great examples out of that. Driving in today, of course, the one that always comes to mind is we have a unique way for, that actually was developed to patch runways because aircraft can't use the cold patches that you think in asphalt. So it's a way to improve the hot patches for asphalt. So we want to transfer that actually to improve roadways, but also things like um, different ways to control uh, act multi-drone systems at the same time, as opposed to one operator per one drone, or looking at uh, how you would use closed captions within a building for um, Homeland Security type of issues.
1: And many, many more. And many more. <laughs> I can go on and on. Thank you so much, Paul, for being on the program. <laughs>
3: Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Coming next, the Defense Department just completed its largest ever joint exercise with Israel. Why the military is flexing its muscle in the Middle East amid the growing threat of China and Russia. We'll be right back. The U.S. military and Israeli Defense Forces have been training together for more than 20 years. This year, though, it conducted its first-ever Juniper Oak exercise. It's the largest-ever joint military exercise in Israel. Jonathan Lord is a senior fellow and the director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Before we talk about the exercises, we need to talk about uh, a reported Israeli drone strike on an Iranian facility. What happened? What's going on there? And was the U.S. notified about that?
4: All good questions, Mimi. Uh, Over the weekend, uh, it is being reported that the Israelis launched a drone strike into Iran which struck a weapons production facility in Isfahan. Uh, There are various reports on how much damage was being done. The Iranians have said uh, minimal damage, the roof was damaged. Uh, Other reports are saying the damage was much more significant. Uh, But what is significant is this facility is used Uh, reportedly to build the uh, killer drones, the loitering munitions that we've seen used in Ukraine and that have been proliferated to other Iranian proxies in the region uh, for years now.
1: And did the U.S. know about this beforehand?
4: Well, that's a great question. That's really the key question. Uh, The timing of this is certainly very significant. Uh, Last week, U.S. and Israel participated in the largest, most complex joint military exercise in the history of the U.S.-Israeli security relationship. And I don't think it's any accident that there was that much uh, U.S. security, military uh, support weapon systems in the region for the purpose of the of the Israelis. That's an insurance policy in case things escalate. So it's an open question of what the U.S. knew uh, and when.
1: Let's talk about the visit of Secretary Blinken to Israel. He met with Netanyahu yesterday. Anything different about U.S.-Israeli relations?
4: No. This is. Frankly, the third meeting we've seen this month between high-level U.S.-Israeli officials. Earlier this month, there was a visit from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Uh, CI Director Bill Burns was there, and of course, Tony Blinken this weekend. Uh, I think this is all in an effort to get the U.S. and Israel on the same page on a number of issues. Uh, What are we going to do about Iran? How do we work together to blunt that threat? Uh, to get to a decent place and raise concerns on the escalating violence between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, And finally, to explore uh, what are the reaches of a future regional security architecture that would involve the U.S., the Israelis, and emerging Gulf partners from the Abraham Accords.
1: So let's talk about those uh, exercises, the Juniper Oak exercises. The U.S. and the IDF work together all the time. So what's really significant about these exercises?
4: These were all domain exercises. Now generally, uh, as a military capabilities analyst, if you're judging the capabilities of a force, first you look at Can they do combined arms? Can the army elements, like the infantry and the artillery, work well together with armor, for instance? Uh, The next level is jointness. Can they bring in the Air Force? Can they bring in uh, Navy fires from from offshore? Um, And then, of course, there's the Air Force. Can they bring in airstrikes? Uh, This did all of that with the Israelis and cyber and space. So in terms of complexity, sophistication, this was a real showcase.
1: And is this what uh, joint exercises are going to start to look like from now on, or is this a, a one off?
4: Well, this was certainly unprecedented in size and scope. Uh, and also the timing uh, of which it came together was was remarkably quick. Normally these exercises take about a year to plan. The planning for this one began early November, which in itself is a demonstration of the ability of the U.S. to flow forces into the region quickly and put together a very complex operation in a very short amount of time. Uh, I think we'll start to see uh, a return to more discrete, smaller level exercises and frankly more exercises that potentially bring in more of the Gulf partners.
1: And what what was the intended message to Iran and other partners? Uh,
4: Well, I think there were a few. Uh, From the U.S. side, uh, it was clear that there was a demonstration that the U.S. could flow forces into the region on very short notice while continuing to support partners in Ukraine, continue regular activities in the Indo-Pacific, as well as, uh, you know, do really advanced things with the Israelis. It's a sign to the Gulf partners of what could be in their future if they continue to advance relations with Israel. And it's certainly a sign to Iran that, should the day come, uh, the U.S. and Israel do in fact have all sorts of options uh, to stop uh, their pursuit of a nuclear weapon.
1: And what's been the biggest takeaway from the exercises themselves? Did we learn anything, or is it too early to know?
4: Well, uh, the final day of the exercise, uh, there was what they call a hot wash on the deck uh, of the uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, Bush aircraft carrier uh, with high-level Israelis uh, and U.S. generals uh, seemingly, seemingly going over uh, the results, uh, trying to figure out where they worked well together, what needs improvement. So I think over time we'll start to see uh, more of that wash out. But ultimately, uh, from what I could tell, uh, everything was a success. Uh, Everyone worked together. There were no uh, safety incidents, uh, and it was really impressive.
1: And I guess the big question is, given that there's a war going on in, you know, Russia, Ukraine, and China is the pacing threat, why are we doing exercises in the Middle East right now?
4: Well, it's important to continue to be able to demonstrate that we can bring U.S. power anywhere in the world in the case of contingency. Uh, It's a reassurance to our partners, especially as we potentially consider drawing down our permanent Uh, military presence so we can actually focus more on building capacity uh, to deter those threats both in Europe and China and Asia largely.
1: And really quickly, has there been any response from Iran? Uh,
4: Not as of yet. Uh, I think it would be probably safe uh, to assume that in the future at some point uh, we'll see the Iranians launch their own uh, exercises uh, off their shore as a response uh, to demonstrate their own capabilities. Uh, but it's very clear that they're not remotely as capable as the U.S. and Israel, certainly combined.
1: All right, Jonathan, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mimi. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. Get the top stories plus exclusive content delivered straight to your inbox. Sign up for our newsletter on the homepage. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 1030 and Sunday mornings at 1030 on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gurgis.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
5: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, and satellite, of course.
1: Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service.
5: It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite